good Wednesday morning, and today we're wrapping up the third and final talk that John Patrick did at Calvary Bible Church in Mount Joy, Pennsylvania. The previous two talks were to the youth group and to the CMDA group, CMDA standing for Christian Medical and Dental Association. And today's talk is going to be the Sunday sermon that John was able to give at Calvary Bible Church. Enjoy. Let's start in the right place with prayer. Let us pray. Almighty God, give us all a deep curiosity about all of your works. Move us to search and question. Give us insight and understanding. A retentive memory and the patience to ponder and reflect. May we not stop short with knowledge, but proceed to the understanding of the heart. Wisdom to view the world with the eyes of faith. Point out the beginning. Help the completion. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. I often read that beautiful prayer at the start of any project because it puts it into perspective. It was written seven centuries ago. Every time I pray... I feel discontented because I love proper words in proper places and I can't come within a mile of a prayer of that quality. I know that in your tradition, I grew up in a similar one where people tended to be proud of the fact that they didn't use repeated prayers. We've got to the stage where we need them again, very definitely. We never didn't need them actually. Because Jesus actually said in the passage we're going to be looking at today, when you pray, say, not your words, our Father. I think every prayer should actually begin that way, because I think that's what he meant. When you pray, say, our Father. Often you won't get any further, and that's good. There are Bibles in the pews, I'm glad to see. COVID took them away in many places, and that was part of the disaster, wasn't it? Um, I would love to do a little introduction, but there isn't any time because I want to draw your attention to the Scriptures. And if you would open your Bibles at Matthew 5, it would be helpful. I'll only use a sentence or two to introduce this. I'm sure you've all seen the film Chariots of Fire probably more often than you want to, right? But there's one scene in that film where uh, Jenny uh, is upset with her brother because he's been out training and he lost his sense of time and he was late for Sunday school. He apologizes But then he puts his hands on his sister's shoulders and he says, Jenny, I have not forgotten our promise. I will go to China with you. But God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. God made me articulate. But I was selfish. I didn't give the gift back to the giver until I was in my 50s. And if I only helped some of you to do it sooner than I did, it will have been worthwhile coming here this morning. 1995, in the refugee camps after the Rwanda war, 
I'd had a project running on the borders of Rwanda in Zaire for about 10 years, so I knew the area. Uh, my wife organized everything to do with that project and is a total Africa file. It, it was her excuse every year to go a month before me to set up and two months to clear up. Uh, I, had a I had a deal with the dean of the medical school that I wouldn't bother him if he didn't bother me, but I disappeared to Africa for two months every year. I took students with me over the years, and such was the effect on them that everybody in the medical school knew about it. And it was more often than not that one of the students who'd been on that project in the summer would be the valedictorian. I didn't take Christians because most Christians in the early part of their university career are a bit of a pain in the backside. Uh, they think they're okay and they're, they're a bit unaware of what's going on around them. And I, I like them to be over that phase. God picks that too. Uh, we should be concerned for all, all the while. But I was bullied into going to Africa I didn't want to go, uh, but missionaries bullied me to go, and my wife immediately cooperated with them, and the children insisted, so I lost the argument, and we went. I went because uh, I was a world expert on the treatment of severely malnourished children. We'd done the work in Jamaica. We could take any child, however severe the malnutrition, within five hours of death and bring them all, all the way back to normal with nearly 100% success. Uh, in famines, the death rate is still 40% in, in that group of children. And when American pediatricians arrive, they make it worse because the real way to do it is so counterintuitive. But having done that work, I'd been following the literature every year, waiting expecting that nutrition programs in Africa, which have never worked, uh, would work. Didn't happen. It's beginning to happen now. We'd done the work by 1979. So I wasn't arrogant enough, I'm pretty arrogant at times, I guess, but I wasn't arrogant enough to think that uh, I could do what hadn't been done before. And so I didn't want to go. I wasn't an expert in communication anyway, I thought because I was fooled by the Faculty of Education as to what it involved. But we went, and uh, the project transformed my family. It didn't do much for Africa initially. But I can tell you, there's no better way to get to know your children than surveying in an area without any roads, walking for five hours through the rainforest with your children. It's very good. All my children said, those long walks from village to village changed our lives. They're all in the faith, and my, they're envious of their oldest sister because she's lived in Malawi for the last 20 years, picking up children that have been abandoned. So I now have 100 legal black grandchildren. Uh, that, that's a wonderful family history to have. But... I always decided what Christian work I would do. I did things that Christians thought were good, but I made the choice, not God. He pushed. He was in charge, actually, all along. As looking back, I now understand to some degree. 
until 1995. 1994, the Rwanda war blew up. It was horrendous. It was not, by the way, a genocide. That's propaganda. Both sides are equally culpable. There were no angels in this. Both sides would have wiped out the other side, and that's been their history for centuries. But the war was horrendous. And we were actually walking, doing a five-day trek through the Tumbi Mountains where there are no roads and about 90,000 women without any health services. Uh, I loved those kinds of terrains. Uh, I loved traveling in places where people haven't been. But we carried a, a shortwave radio with us because uh, you need to know what's going on and the BBC are the best source. And about two days in, we heard that the, the war that had been simmering between the Hutu and the Tutsu was blowing up in Rwanda. Sally was on the board of World Relief Canada, so when we finished that, that eight-day walk, uh, she went straight up to see what was going on, and she was there before the UN or anybody else arrived. Only the local missionaries were there. Many of the prostate ones, I'm afraid, ran away. They couldn't handle it. Um, they didn't have the resources. The only people who worked through the first two weeks were evangelical Protestants, not many of them, they included my wife, and Roman Catholic nuns and priests. The, the UN, when they arrived, could manage about two days, and then they went back to Nairobi for three days rest and resuscitation. 30,000 people died in virtually no time when cholera broke out. That's hard to deal with. Sally went over the bridge into the war zone because there were piles of dried skim milk there and managed to get them back. She had to bribe her way over the bridge between Rwanda and uh, Zaire uh, with giving gifts of dried skim milk. Meanwhile, the Tutsi were shooting Hutu trying to swim the river. She saw much violence in the next few years. But I knew that September she was not going to come back. I had to come back as a professor to keep the, uh, the bills paid, etc. My youngest was going to university that September, so I was on my own. And there were seven-year-olds trying to care for four-year-olds. Sally loves children. She wasn't going to come back. I knew that. She didn't know it immediately. I knew it before she did. It took two years before she came back. She flew back twice uh, to raise money, but that's all. And we... To be honest, the family said we, she co-opted everybody's agenda, and when she got on the plane to go back, we heaved a, a minor sigh of relief. But I went out to see her in, in uh, the summer of 95. There was no email in those days and no connection. Uh, MAF occasionally carried a message for us, but we had contact about every six weeks uh, in somewhere or another. She was too busy to write letters. When I got there, my research in the, in the area had been completely ruined and nothing was going to happen. I knew that. I went to see my wife. But she had other ideas and so did God. She knows I don't suffer from jet lag. So the morning after I arrived, she said, um, you're going to meet the leaders of my refugee camps this morning. They need to talk to you. They want to talk to you. I said, Sally, you don't mean that. We live in Canada. We are very comfortable. I live in an ivory tower. Uh, they've lost everything. 
what have I got to say to them? And she said, wives well, are very good like this. Everything in my life has been pushed in this kind of way. I never volunteer for anything. Uh, she said, you're made for this job. No point in arguing, um, so I went. We talked for about three hours. Now, you have to understand that the Rwandans are more church-going than you are, and certainly an order of magnitude more than Canadians. 80% of Rwandans would be in church on Sunday, uh, roughly half evangelical and half Catholic. And when we got to three hours, it was quite clear to me that their biggest problem was they were feeling incredibly guilty for what had gone on. And they said this, how could we, who called ourselves Christian, ending up, end up killing people whose names we knew and sometimes people we had sat next to in church? Women had burned children alive that they knew the names of. It was an outpouring of evil. They were deeply repentant. They could not understand what had happened. But it's happened in the history of the world many times. It so turned out, and I can't do the next bit, but I have been prepared in quite extraordinary ways. But I said, they said, can you help us? And I knew that I had been prepared for that job. And I said, well, I think there are four talks that might help you. Um, the first would be to tell you some history, because we're very bad at history. Britain was as bad as Rwanda, but it was nearly 20 centuries ago. The gospel came, and conversion occurred, much as it did in Rwanda. But we didn't develop any serious evidence of the virtues of Judaic Judeo-Christian thought in our governments and in any other way for four centuries. And everywhere I go in Africa where the church is growing, conversions are happening, some of them now, uh, over 50 years ago, and what do the Christian leaders say to me? Why aren't we developing? They are actually, slowly, but nothing like what they expect. We go from the Western world, having lost our way and thinking that technology is their problem. We take our technologies and they don't work. We run hospitals and they cease to run within a few years of the missionaries leaving. The government is corrupt even though, for instance, uh, I've got name block for the, the previous, one of the previous presidents and of, of Kenya, perhaps uh, God doesn't want me to put his name to his behavior. But he was a Sunday school teacher and he became one of the richest men in the world. But his country didn't. What's the answer? So I said, first I will teach you that conversion does not make you good and that getting good takes a long while. The second thing I would do is teach you to have a, a deeper theology of salvation. In particular, Paul writes to the epistle, his epistles because the church is getting important things wrong, because he's interested not so much in your conversion. He says, I understand now that your conversion has worked. You are really loving one another. Now it is really worth praying for you. His prayer is that the church may be rooted and grounded. 
And as Peter puts it beautifully, he wants virtue to come in the church, and that does not come quickly. And it requires a lot. But first of all, you need to recognize that that is the problem. If I asked every one of you to stand up in one after the other and, and give an, an example of the last week where God saved you, took you further into the kingdom, I'm not particularly interested in conversion in that sense because we don't do that. I have never said to anyone, become a Christian now. I think that's arrogant. Jesus didn't even say it to Nicodemus. He said, you can't get the conversion you want from where you are now. The Spirit has got to come to work. Conversion is the work of the Spirit, not us. We can do everything we can. We are to bear witness to what the Lord is doing in our lives. That's why I want you to be able to stand up and say how you were saved this week. So that would be the next talk. The, the most important one, is, in many ways, is the third one. You need to understand the distinction between a mere believer and a disciple. And that is found in Matthew 4, 5, and 6. That is what it's about. Sadly, in many dispensationally dominated churches, it's not even taught. I grew up in one such. Uh, they, they knew their scriptures well, but they never preached on the... I never heard a sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. But this is our Lord's longest... It's not a sermon, as you'll see in a moment. But it's the longest passage we have of Jesus' teaching. And we, we don't take any notice of it. We pretend, well, it's before salvation. It, it's not really for us. Get real. Jesus never wasted his time. And the Holy Spirit never wasted his time in determining what should and should not go into the New Testament. And this is the longest passage we have. And we don't know it. I found I didn't know it. Uh, I can't go into a story. It's hilarious. But I was testing students out to prove their biblical illiteracy, and that was easy to do. And I used the Sermon on the Mount as an example. And then I realized that as a professor, I was deeply guilty of not using the talents God had given me. Uh, I rarely took notes to give uh, undergraduate lectures. Why would I? Uh, waste of my time. Uh, I took a folder so they didn't realize I didn't have any notes, but, and turned them over, you know. It had nothing to do with the lecture. But I couldn't do that with our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. I couldn't give a coherent account of what I had read and studied. The test of whether you really have learned something is can you get up and talk your way through it without looking at the text? Now, I brought the text with me today. I'm not actually reading it, but I might at some point. It's not my Bible. Uh, I, I travel with a very little one, but I, I need one here. So it's my hostess's Bible. The most interesting thing is I want to read what she thinks about it. Um, but I won't. <laughs> So I learned the Sermon on the Mount by heart. Bonhoeffer had taught me that, and I had been somewhat discontented with my faith, and things were happening. And Bonhoeffer said, when you're struggling, ask God to give you a passage of Scripture from him to you personally. Just add it to your prayers. Lord, I need a passage of Scripture to come to life for me. 
by your hand so that I can't deny that and to guide my life. He will answer that. Uh, it might take weeks or even months. In my case, it have probably been a couple of months that I've been praying that pretty frequently. And then when I realized that I couldn't approach the Sermon on the Mount with anything like the rigor that I would do everything else I do in my life, that's not acceptable. You can't have a lesser quality of work for what you say is of eternal importance. It's not. It's irrational. It's stupid. And it ruins your life. So put it right. Uh, and Bonhoeffer explained what would happen. First you read it every day until it starts, till you've got it in order. And I mean, if you've got a mind like mine, it doesn't take long. A few readings and I could more or less recite it. But then the important thing happened. I'd actually heard Martin Lloyd-Jones preach on this passage years before. I could still remember bits of it. But now what he was saying, I, 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 my empathy for him just grew. What Jesus is doing here is absolutely stunning. And what you've got is not an account of what he said entirely. A professor can recognize what this is. This is very, very good notes. Technically, it would be a pricey, not a summary altogether. Um, Matthew, fortunately, is very good. I love the portrayal of Matthew as a, something of an autistic kid who will focus on something with great intensity, which is exactly what you would need. That's one of their strengths. Uh, they have many burdens, but they do have that strength in most cases. So what's, what's going on here? Well, Jesus had been healing people after the sun went down on the Sabbath. The next morning, he woke up in the village and I, he looked out at the village and he saw the crowds and he spoke with his father. He said, I do nothing except what the father tells me. And the question was, what do I do? I was thinking of teaching today, but look, there's lots of people to be healed. And the answer was, go and teach. If we had the healing powers of Christ, we would spend our whole life healing. And all the people we healed would die. What he taught on that hillside I visit, visited the place where it's supposed to have ha happened and I could imagine it happening. What he taught on that hillside changed the world because it's this passage and what it contains which created the kind of discipleship which could go through all the doldrums and the difficulties of life. First time we went to Africa, uh, medical missions in particular, uh, the, the missionaries never learned the language because the day they arrived they stopped operating and doing medicine, and they never get time to really learn the language beyond what they need for medicine. So when it comes to their weekly devotionals, which most of them run, they were living off tapes, sermons from America which had virtually no connection with what they were facing. We went out there, I went out for a technical reason, I didn't go out for Christian reasons, but when I went to their first session, I said, why don't you do at least an ordinary Bible study? They said, we don't have the energy. Could you do it? So one of the best things I did that summer, and they still remind me of it, was to teach them how to read Matthew 4, 5, and 6. It took all summer. You've got another half hour or so at the most. Uh, there's a three-hour or a one-hour CD out there somewhere. Um, it's probably on the 
bits of it are lying around. If anybody wanted to do more, I'd gladly do the rest this evening. But John Stott says that if you want a single line to tell you what this is going to do to you, Jesus is going to say to you, you have got to be different. You have got to be so different that other people see it. You should never try to evangelize the people you work with because they're watching you. That's your evangelism. So they sit down. I like to think that it was Matthew's conversion story because he puts his conversion after the Sermon on the Mount, not before it. And given his psychological tendencies, I don't think he'd get his chronology wrong. He had sold his birthright for a mess of pottage. He'd become a tax collector to make a lot of money and be hated by all his own people. So he had lots of friends of the sort you have when you've got money who are no friends at all because they disappear when your money does. Ah. And he knew it. I like to think that he had ripped Jesus off at some point. And for the first time in his life, instead of somebody being furious, he saw someone looking at him with pity. And he had never been pitied in his life before. So he never forgot. This is artistic license on my part. So when he heard that Jesus had become, in his terms, a traveling rabbi who was doing miracles, he was going to go and see because he wasn't far away. So I presume he said to his, his helpers, you can rip me off today. I'm, you, I've taught you how to do it. I'm going to listen to this man. He heard where he was. I, I like to think of him arriving a bit late and he gets to the village where he heard he was. Nobody was there. One of the old people said, where, where is everybody? They pointed. They're up on the hillside, look. They're just settling down. So he had to run and of course he's out of condition. So he arrives, breathless, and the first words he hears are, blessed are the poor in spirit. What on earth does he mean by that? But of course, any professor reading this knows that these are aphorisms, and aphorisms have to be interpreted. Each of them needs to be interpreted. And as you do that, they grow in meaning, and the structure of them becomes shatteringly brilliant. Ah, he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What on earth did he say next? Well, he's saying it to you and me as well. He says, if you're going to become a disciple, the first step is to have incredible humility within, not as an effort on your part, but as a recognition of reality. Imagine I could now go, whoop, and every one of you is going to have a cartoon bubble over your head for the next week and you can't switch it off. And everybody can read every thought in your head. Where are you going to go? In the toilet, lock the door for a week? I mean, <laughs> you're stuck on you. None of us could endure that. But that is the truth about you. And yet Jesus says you have the kingdom. Why? Because the entry ticket to the kingdom as a disciple is truthfulness about yourself. And that is not going to be good news. But that's the start of discipleship. It leads immediately to the next one. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now there are slight variations between Matthew and Luke. There were multiple variations en route. I have no doubt at all, having been in, in the same kind of world in Africa. Jesus preached this content in various ways, adapting it as he went along because he knew the exact needs of the people he was talking to. So very much more practical in Luke. But in Matthew, this is the deeper of the two. Um, Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus, in effect, says, now you face the truth. The kingdom is actually yours because I am the source of all truths. So I like talking to atheists more than the hoi polloi, so to speak, because they are trying to be honest. They're much closer to the kingdom than the vast majority of, I don't really know what I believe, doesn't matter anyway, does it? The modern student, whatever. Uh, it was nice to hear some accounts of what's going on. And I agree that there's some change because it's getting black enough. But most students uh, who are Christian take, do take 20 years to recover from university. And if you're a doctor, it's even longer. You've never heard a doctor get in, up in your church when prayer time comes along with a request and say something like this, but it's perfectly true. I haven't been able to open my Bible and read meaningfully or pray or take the Lord's Supper with any response in my heart for weeks. That would be just a family practitioner who has a, a reasonable life going on. But by the time you get to a professor for years, that's normal. They don't say it because you wouldn't believe them, but it's true. They disbelieve the story but there's no subjective affect. We sing happy songs, some of which uh, are reasonably theologically correct. But when a doctor comes into church on Sunday morning, and I think many others would be in the same state, they need what Jesus says next. You face, you're facing the truth you're forced to when you know somebody died last week because you weren't on the ball. You're not gonna sing happy songs then, are you? But it happens to every doctor at some point, many times in some cases. But Jesus has said, the kingdom is yours. But he says, that's not enough. That's the connecting thought. Not enough. It is yours, and I always keep my promises, but you've got a lot of work to do. And it starts with mourning for your own state. Lewis captures it beautifully in Mere Christianity, where he says this, God does not demand repentance of you. It is simply a description of what coming to God is like. It's not a burden. We don't have much repentance in our church. I think it's time it came back. I mean, I need words like, I have done what I ought not to have done. I have failed to do what I ought to have done, and there is no health in me. I am like a sheep who has gone astray. I do need a shepherd to bring me back. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I have sinned as a Christian every week. I can't even drive to, to church most days without breaking the law. Uh, and many of you are the same. But without repentance, there can be no admission 
to real fellowship with God because he will not endure sin in his presence. It's his mercy towards you that he looks from afar, so to speak. Because if you really did have a vision of God, you would be flat on your face. And the first thing you would say would be with Isaiah, I am a man of unclean lips and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Even the Holy Apostle John, at the end of his life on Patmos, when he saw Christ, he still fell flat on his face and had to be lifted up. We're not prepared. And repentance is such a real thing when it's done properly, to be relieved of that burden. And people are carrying burdens of all sorts, and they go for counselling by people who haven't a clue what they're talking about. It has to get really bad before they recognise it. When God brought me back, and that summer in the, the refugee camps, at long last, for the first time in my life, I had nothing that I wanted to do that summer. And so I rather grudgingly said, Lord, I'm better off when I'm working. Is there anything I can do? I'll do it. He takes even that grudging admission of the reality, and he turned it into something beyond belief. I ended up teaching for between three and six hours a day, every other day, for two months. I was in tears frequently. They were always in tears. And I was the happiest man on earth. I felt his pleasure. It is absolutely addictive. There's nothing like it in this world. And I hope you all experience it at some point. And repentance is step two. And you can't even do that yourself. You have to ask for it as a gift. You'll find that in the first coming of the gospel to the Gentiles, Cornelius. Use the RSV, an old version of it, because the modern translators are infected, I'm afraid. I call the, oops, that's bad news. The, well, it's not. It's just the batteries. Since I don't have any pictures, it's okay. I don't even use overheads because there's plenty of good evidence that overheads actually diminish attention. If you start going to sleep, I will stop talking. But you're not doing that yet. This is the world I want to introduce you to. What... And it's all there in the scriptures. Peter has to be bullied to go to Cornelius. He's not being Jewish at all. And then, do you think he was happy when Cornelius and all his family were struck by the Spirit and got saved? I don't think he was. In his human sense, he said, oh dear, what am I going to tell the old Jews in Jerusalem? Because they certainly weren't ready for it. And Luke is such a wonderful writer. Uh, it's always worth paying attention to. And he writes, I can see them. He says, they said to one another, then God has given the gift of repentance to the Gentiles also. The gift of repentance. But it's a gift that can be sought. He wants you to ask. And he will give it. As much as you can bear. He doesn't do it all in one go because he knows we'd, just, we'd be done for. But open yourself up to it. 
every day. Now you can be comforted. There's no comfort attached to the first one. There's some good news, but you still feel terrible. And this comfort isn't actually too much about how you feel. My best illustration for it comes from the Bayer Tapestry, where there's a, a little picture of the Bishop of Oddo, and he's with the army. It says, Bishop Oddo driving the troops into battle. And he's got in his hand a staff with a chain and a spike ball on the end. That's how he drives into battle. That's the picture of the Holy Spirit. He's got a spike ball which can take away your comfort or give it to you. Uh, he wants to drive you into battle. And comfort is when you do what you're supposed to do and you find it's actually okay. Uh, going to any primitive environment uh, is going to be challenging. Most missionaries actually go through serious depression uh, in the first couple of years. And often they feel they couldn't talk about it. I mean, the first time I went out, as I say, for technical reasons, uh, I could see immediately that one of the women on the uh, mission staff there was suffering a very hard-faced depression. And actually, she admitted it very quickly. Uh, and I mean, she needed some treatment. As it, it was she had that problem anyway. But don't say to people about things that you don't understand. Just pray about it. You should pray about it, but don't make them feel that if their prayers feel like they're bouncing off the ceiling, uh, they're poor Christians. That's not. God knows what he's doing, and sometimes I don't understand it. And there's a whole range of diseases I want an explanation of, uh, and especially what he does to children. But he's promised. There's no understanding of everything here but there will be uh, I have this I spent the last 20 years of my clinical life seeing only children that the modern liberal wants to kill before they're born children with cerebral palsy very complex metabolic diseases all that sort of thing cystic fibrosis was in there cerebral palsy none of them were going to have a wonderful life but actually, at the end of the clinic, I was always in doubt as to who the patient was because they taught me far more about what it means to be a good human being than I ever taught them. They have a very important role in our world. I'm sorry there isn't a wheelchair in here and there aren't more handicapped people and there aren't more young men who are handicapped at the moment more than any other group. You need a notice outside saying, young men welcome. Uh, they need you. It's the only way out. So that moves on to the next one. When you've been comforted and are stronger, he says, right, now you must become meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That sounds good. You're in for a bit of a shock. This was the, the beatitude that yielded last to my scholarly uh, poking around in the literature. It was Barclay, actually, in a, uh, in a lovely little essay somewhere, which I've forgotten where it is. But he's brilliant on New Testament street Greek. Uh, 
And the word that is translated meek, praus, uh, has a wonderful story attached to it. It's a lovely metaphor. It's used to describe a horse that has been broken in, trained, and is now ready to ride into battle. Got the picture? You are meek when you can say to Lord, to the Lord, ride me into battle today. That's what he wants to do. And your duty, very simple. Does the horse have any big plans for the day? No, neither should you. Just obey. I mean, love in the Bible is defined in the most brilliant way, isn't it? If you love me, keep my commandments. Nothing about feeling there at all. Feeling is God's province. It's, it's very important, but we can't, if we make it up ourselves by happy clappy songs or whatever, it will evaporate by the time you get to the door. But when you go down through this process, as I did in the refugee camps that summer, I was the happiest man in the world with tears running down my face frequently because I felt his pleasure. I felt his pleasure. That's a, a different order of magnitude. To be meek, then, is to seek to be obedient. Not so very long ago, I, I was uh, speaking in Presno uh, in a doctor's home, so huge, uh, about 50 people there, and one young woman burst into the room uh, just before I started, uh, very energetic young woman, a surgeon. Ah, she said, God, I'm not late. I remember you every morning in the parking lot as I go into the Department of Surgery and I say, Lord, ride me into battle today. I was glad to see her again. You need to be like that if you're a, the only woman in a rather paternalistic, at best, uh, male-dominated department. But that's the way it works. And you get the kingdom. Ah, that doesn't mean uh, a Ferrari in the garage or uh, a few Dior dresses in the cupboard. No, no, he doesn't mean that. Who was richer, Princess Diana or Mother Teresa? They didn't die very close to one another, accidentally, I'm sure. If you've been tempted to say Princess Diana, it's back to the beginning of the Beatitudes and ask God to show you what that means about the truth of your heart. Because Mother Teresa could put all her worldly possessions in a bucket, but wherever she went in the world, people would almost be fighting over doing anything for her. She was loved in a way that Princess Diana was looking for and I suspect sadly never found. So Jesus is now working on your idea of what riches are. You know, I, I, I look at the grace which I should have seen so clearly enough in my life from where I am now in my 80s and I, I'm devastated that I didn't see it before. But every time I look at my family picture, we have with a few hangers on, usually 50 to uh, Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving. And within our family, there is no divorce. Can you imagine getting that sized of 
people together without divorce in America today. And it's the thing that students in university hate most. I love going to liberal university and uh, teasing them at this point for good purpose. And I will say something like this, I've only been in your university a few hours, but I do know a few things about you. I know, for instance, that you all hate divorce. And of course, you see the PC people. And I say, hang on a minute, I can see some of you want to cancel me on the spot. But I can also see the bubble, particularly over the heads of the, the young people, and especially over the heads of the girls. And you do hate divorce. And I can tell you why. If it hasn't happened to you, it has happened to your friends. Has any child ever enjoyed this? No. They may accept its inevitability because you stupidly got married without proper counseling and without becoming a real Christian. And churches don't offer proper counseling in many cases. I think one of the, the best pieces of advice I've ever come across, and I think is absolutely true, if you are sleeping with your current friend and are thinking of getting married, stop sleeping with them for two years before you marry. Because if you can't manage to love them without sex, now, you're going to have to at some point in most cases. You shouldn't marry. You're not doing it for the right reason. They might have become quadriplegic the day after you marry them. You're going to walk away? So, back to the Sermon on the Mount. Where do we go next? The, the world you receive, the riches you get, are things like functional families. What price can you put on that? And so on. And endless joy as you constantly explore what God has done. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's the difference between the 18th century revival and most of the ones that followed. There wasn't much fruit after the, 18th, after the others. The 18th century was incredibly fruitful. I know, the, uh, I know about uh, the, the Massachusetts and, uh, gosh, I've got name block even for uh, the pastor who wrote the sermon that started it all, Sinners in the Hands of a, an Angry God, Jonathan Edwards, there we go. Yeah. I'm getting to that age, particularly names. So if I call you by the wrong name, that's what's going on, if I call you by any name. Uh, but in England, we had Wesley and Whitfield. Now, when they started to preach, it was said in London that every sixth house sold gin. And the advertising was drunk for one penny, dead drunk for two, clean straw for three. It was not good news. But when Whitfield started to preach, not in London, but in Bristol, in a place that sounds nice, uh, but is actually a, was open-cast mining at the time, and no civilized man went out there because he might not come back alive, but Whitfield went to preach to the miners. And there's an account in the Bristol newspaper of Whitfield with his incredible voice started preaching, and out of their hovels came the miners to listen. And a good journalist knows something you can put in that will move people. He, he describes white lines coming down the faces of the miners as they wept. 
and they were saved by the grace of God. Six weeks later, Whitfield was coming back to America and the miners asked him to come and have a meal with them before he left. And when he got there, they wanted him to lay the foundation stone of their first school. In six weeks from total degradation to caring about their children and wanting education. That's the fruit of real conversion. And out of the 18th century revival in England, we got the Clapham sect, we got the abolition of slavery, that it started from there. We got the reform of the prisons, we got the, 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 the banning of child labor, we changed the laws that allowed the aristocrats to totally dominate so that it was then began to be possible for things to, to grow. 18th century inventiveness was incredible. Uh, read Paul Johnson's account if you want more because he's the best historian on that, I think. The world changed after the 18th century in England dramatically and it was because of revival. Most people don't acknowledge that, but you look at the data, it's overwhelmingly obvious. What comes to, so we should be concerned. We tend to use church as a place to hide away. You've got to be very careful here. The Methodists allowed the, this verse to dominate everything else. They took it out of context. And before long, the social engineering and politics tail of the dog wagged the dog and the Methodist Church in England died within a hundred years or so. Uh, that's why you need the whole thing. That's why you need to read chunks of chap uh, the scripture and reread them till they come to life instead of reading your verses and thinking you've rather like cleaning your teeth. It's not the same thing. So that hunger and thirst will, ar will arise and it will be satisfied. That's the promise. Then comes the next one. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Now, one of the, the things that happens when you're preaching is you see the audience faces if you don't read it, and I never do. And I see people who have this problem, and I see it in pediatrics as well. This is the only verse that's repeated in the Sermon on the Mount. Not exactly, but it it comes immediately after the Lord's Prayer. Do any of you know what it says? If you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. That's not a threat. That's a statement of moral reality. If you want forgiveness, the fact that that is a real wanting and you received it will show in your forgiveness of others. I mean, I, I'm... In the last week, actually, as I read, as I often do, or went through the Sermon on the Mount, for the first time, I saw the conjunction of give us this day our daily bread, and immediately afterwards, repentance. Forgive us our trespasses. From God's point of view, yes, you need food, and you need repentance every day. And that's true, isn't it? You need forgiveness. We all do but we'd be a very different people if we took it more seriously. Uh, people who have handicapped, seriously handicapped children, they make or break fam families, but often mothers pour themselves into those children 
and they re retain a hardness and they can't forgive it. They, they are very unhappy people because they haven't been able to give that back into God's hands. And that is true of any of us. We, we, forgiveness is not something we can do. It's something we has, have to ask help for. Uh, I, I didn't learn till relatively recently from a feminist who said, well, yeah, there are real differences. And she said one of them is that men, much to women's disgust sometimes, when they meet and they've met for a while and then they joke a bit and they re remember something and they give one another a punch or whatever, they, they can be quite rough. But then they shrug and go off to the pub for a drink. Women don't give away those. They, they have a long memory for people who look down on them. And I said, no. But I've seen one or two faces already acknowledged by a little whimsical move in their face that, yes, it's true. Uh, perhaps that's another difference between men and women, that God has some use for that holding on to things that women can do. Men just get on with it. You know, what comes next? We're much more functional at that level. But we can do some pretty awful things in the process. I don't know. You can write to me if you come up with a good way to think about that. Or a an effective way to think about it. That moves on to the next one, which is, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I don't know enough about this one. Only tiny glimpses for me so far. I have to read it in others. But I think Kierkegaard, of all people, gets it best. He does it in one sentence. To be pure in heart is to will one thing. And that one thing, of course, is, I will be done. And when it reaches a genuine state of commitment, that's when you see God. Thomas Aquinas, at the end of his life, this is a good story for uh, Protestants to know, uh, he had done an amazing intellectual feat. I mean, the, the Summa, which he never finished, uh, is, I think, without doubt, the greatest intellectual feat since Augustine, uh, 500 years, roughly, more. But shortly before he died, he was in the chapel one morning and he, had, he went into a trance. Another monk was there and saw that, that he was not passed out or anything. He was carried away, like Paul describes. And the other monk heard Jesus and him exchange a very short exchange. Christ said to Thomas, it is well done, Thomas. What do you want? And Thomas said, only you, O Lord. He never wrote another word after that experience, and he died very shortly afterwards. God, Christ, has no needs that we can meet. There's nothing so untrue. He has no feet, it's your feet, no hands but your hands. He doesn't need either to accomplish his. He could do it all on his own. We are here to learn enough to be ready for heaven. That's why innocent children with handicap, when they've done their job, which they often do by dying in a way that blows everybody out of the water and turns them to faith. Uh, they have their job to do, and when it's over, they'll go. My life was turned around at one point, or it was being turned at this stage in my life when God was at work, and I was recalcitrant. I took a while to change, but 
one of the things I'd done was to put the first permanent feeding tube into a child with cystic fibrosis, and it, it's now a worldwide procedure, and it helps them a lot. But before I could get to that point, I needed to do some experiments to show that it could be done without an invasive move. And I needed volunteers. And the first volunteer was a 15-year-old boy with a body mass of an 11-year-old. Uh, he wanted muscle like nothing else. And when I said I wanted to try and build muscle, uh, he was the first volunteer, farmer's son who couldn't even lift a small bale. And I said, Stephen, you haven't even... Uh, asked me what I want to do. Uh, hang on a minute, you might not be willing. He said, I'll do anything, and he meant it. He, I, I needed to feed him with a tube through his nose into his stomach for a month to do it, uh, to show that there was benefit from uh, spreading and increasing and feeding through the night. And there was, but not enough for him. At the end, he never complained, uh, but it, he only got 600 grams. But we had a few uh, little glitches to iron out, and we did. But halfway through that month, I went in to see him because I got home from church uh, and the nurses rang and said, we've got so many admissions today. Stephen's just coughed up his tube. Uh, you'll have to come put it in yourself. We won't put it in until seven o'clock tonight. I said, fine. I drove into the, into the hospital and got to his bedside and I was wearing a suit. And he said, oh, you've been to church? I said, yes. Do you go to church? He said, yes. I said, which are you? He said, oh, I'm Catholic. I said, I'm Protestant. And I put the tube in and went home. Uh, but his amazing mother, who was going to lose three children to CF, didn't have a normal one. The next week in the corridor, she stopped me and said, you had an opportunity on Sunday to speak to Stephen about faith. You would do that very well. She had no evidence for that other than, I suppose, watching me in other sit settings. And I took no notice of it. I didn't change my behavior at that point. Uh, and it wasn't until four years later. For Stephen, it didn't work, but it did. Within a year, we, were, we ironed out the, the glitches and it was working, and it working very well. But I was called to go and see him again just after lunch. And when I got to his room, he was clearly dying. His mom was sitting by the bed, just being there, which is what you want when you're dying with respiratory failure. You don't want to talk, but you don't want to be alone. He hadn't said anything for an hour or more, but when I walked in, he said, oh, sit down, I want to talk to you. Uh, past the normal patient-doctor relationship. And I said, Stephen, what can I do for you? I'm so sorry, you're so sick. And he said, it says in the Bible, if you ask anything in my name, I'll give it to you. I'm 19 and I'm dying and I don't want to. What do you say? What would you do? What would you say? I wanted to get out of there as fast as possible, but it wasn't an option. Uh, I, yeah, he, he even retained his sense of humor. We both had a similar sense of humor, if, it's, if it is humor. Uh, and I said, it will take, that's a hard question. It will take a little while. And he said with a wisp of a smile, I've got a little while. Both he and I knew that his death, his life was measured in hours at that point. So I took a deep breath and I went through the creeds. He was Catholic after all. I, at that point, was an Anglican. Uh, so we had that in common. But of course, he believed the creeds. The problem was it wasn't helping. Like much of what you say you believe that doesn't help. Ah... Uh, 
And I was praying too, which is what you do when you're in trouble. The best prayer in the Bible is help. I find it's almost invariably answered when it's genuine. And that was my prayer. Lord, you know I'm out of debt. Help. Uh, and into my head, he, insert, he, he, can in, he inserts what he's put there years before or allowed to stick there. And it was a quotation from an American writer, Annie Dillard. Turned out it was a footnote. She's a wonderful writer. Uh, had, a, had a troubled life and then got it sorted out. And so she began, she sees the Christian world through eyes which can do us good. She said when she first went to church, she said, there's a man giving you a grub, grubby little book, uh, which is just about readable. They should be handing out crash helmets because if God Almighty turns up, we're in trouble. That's quite a nice idea. Well, fancy handing out crash helmets, you know, but she's got a point. But the footnote was this, oh yes, God will provide for all your needs, but do read the small print. He decides what your needs are, not you. That's, I knew what to say. And I could say to Stephen, look, there are little boys who can skate for a minute who would possibly not even be watching, but for your courage. The kids on this ward who are running along the ward who wouldn't even have been walking because of your courage. You have done more for the good of humankind in your short life than most of us will do in a full one. I think God is saying to you something like this. Stephen, you have coughed enough. It's time to come home. You've done all that I want you to do. And he looked up and smiled and he said, thank you, that helps. I think I can. His mother didn't say a word. Uh, I'm being told I have to stop uh, very shortly. Uh, but she wrote to me about three weeks later. And I, I, I lost the note for years and then I found it again a, a couple of years ago. And it went roughly like this. It was ironic you were not allowed to give Stephen food for his body. But thank God you were there when he needed food for his soul. He'd been asking that question of his priest, his doctor, his family, everybody had pushed it away till I came along. But of course, it wasn't actually for Stephen, that episode. Stephen was gonna have the best answer in the world three hours later. It was very important for his mother that he die well. She was gonna have to go through this process three times. And it was for me. For me, it was a guilt trip. I was one of the few Christian professors in the Department of Medicine. Uh, but most of the students didn't know it. And I hadn't had a conversation about faith with a patient for 20 years. So I had to go through the Beatitudes and repent. I, didn't, I hadn't learned the Sermon on the Mount in the way I know it now at that point, but it was part of the process uh, and change. And I did, thank God. Stephen changed my life for the better. I'm looking forward to meeting him and telling him the story if he doesn't already know it. And that, of course, leads to the next one. When you are pure in heart, I call it blessed are the transparent, for they shall be removed from all committees. Uh, because all committees, even in church, are about power. What's some, the power of knowledge? So if you want to get off a committee any time, be as pure as the Lord wishes you to be, wait for the, in, the piece of important information and simply say, who ought to know that? And how do we make sure they do? And you won't get the minutes of the next meeting until after the meeting has taken place. Uh, 
and you never go to another committee meeting. When I left the university, I hadn't been to a committee meeting for about three or four years. I was on one committee. It never met because I was the chairman. <laughs> and I did the work. And I, it was the electives committee, and nobody could do what I did. If, it, if they were doing an elective in an accredited medical school, I signed the, the form. But I could get them to go around the world, stopping off at a mission station in Africa, in India, in Indonesia, and coming back different people. Uh, the ones that did it said, amazing. Like the kids who came to Africa with me, they said, I'll never do anything like that in many cases, but oh, it's changed me. Oh, I'm so glad I did do it. And some of them couldn't wait to get back. So we're almost there. And then once you become transparent, especially academic departments, they're always having trouble get, because they can't get on with one another. And eventually something has to be done. That's when you'll be asked to do something. And they will eventually uh, do what it says. People will recognize this is not human behavior. It must be because you're a child of God. And then you will be persecuted. And note, here's something for the praise group. Jesus repeats this one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. It follows, I think, that rejoicing cannot be a feeling because you cannot command your feelings. This is an act of will. And Jesus then, it's a rational Christian response, and Jesus gives you the rationale next. He says, look at the company you've joined, the prophets. They know this experience. I know that experience, says Jesus. You have got reason to rejoice because it's evidence that your faith is real and there is a reward in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupt and thieves do not break in and steal. Brilliant. And that's the setup for the salt where I have to finish. That, this sequence I go through at some stage, most days, usually in the middle of the night. That's, I don't, I'm not very good at prayer. But I, I love the phrase, songs in the night, which occurs in the Psalms several times. And the good Lord wakes me up in the middle of the night, and I pray for my wife and my family and the problems that are going on. But I mean, he, the, what he says to me basically is, son, I haven't heard from you today. What's going on? Those are very beautiful times. And then I start reciting the Sermon on, my, on the Mount to myself, and he usually sends me back to sleep in about 12 verses. I mean, Christians don't suffer from insomnia. They suffer from failing to recognize that you're being called to songs in the night. Do that and you'll be back asleep as soon as the good Lord wishes it. And sometimes he doesn't and that's even better because it means you're going to learn something that's going to make a real difference. So, whoa, <laughs> an act of God. Time to finish. But what he says next is that you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savor, it is good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden underfoot of man. What's he saying? Well, he's talking about salt in a way you don't think about it. Salt in the ancient world was rock salt. A lot of other salts like aluminum salts and silicates and all the rest, and a little bit of sodium chloride. 
which is your salt. Uh, it was so valuable that the Latin word for salt gives us our word salary. You could be paid in salt. That's how valuable it was. But what was it used for when it wasn't white and pure? Well, it was used to preserve meat and fish through the winter. The point of salt is to preserve what is good and destroy what is evil. Got the message? Can you point to oh, wait, what's gone on here this weekend, the mission work? That's salt in the good sense. It should also be salt in the other sense of bringing into focus things that are not good and should be dealt with. But there's even more to this metaphor. The housewife would go to the market to buy the salt uh, and a good businessman would have a bag of salt, but it's salty, it's variable. So he would make sure that the best salt was at the top. Now, the real disaster would be if the salt sacks were standing outside the shop and there was a sun, sudden unexpected downpour and there was an inch or so of water on the ground for a few minutes. That would be more than enough to take all the water-soluble sodium chloride out of the wet part of the bag. With, it wouldn't change in volume because it's only a small percentage of the whole. If you want an example of perception is everything, no, this is the perfect example that it isn't. Uh, for Christians, perception is not everything. So the housewife would buy the salt, and obviously she'd taste the top of the sack to see that it's starting with decent salt, and she'd go on doing that, but you get tired of tasting salt. So by the time she gets to the bottom, she doesn't do it. And then a little while later, there's a nasty smell. Does she blame the fish, or does she blame the salt? She blames the salt, doesn't she? You see what Jesus is saying to you and to me? When the world goes wrong, when bad things are happening all around you, it's the church's fault because we're not salty enough. The 18th century is a perfect example of what happens when Christians get salty, the world improves. And when they lose their salt, they're good for nothing. And that's the next step. You call yourself a Christian when you're not at this level. When your friends go out for a night on the tiles, they don't want you along with you because you'll spoil the fun. Don't pretend to the young people that sinful behavior isn't transiently pleasurable and can be very addictive, as you know very well. Don't pretend. The devil's very good at making it look good till he's hooked you. But if you are not living as a disciple, you won't have any friends in that area. But then if you go along with some of your friends who are living this life, then you feel rotten as well. So you're good for nothing except to be trodden on by everybody. And that's, what, that's Jesus speaking, not me. And what do you do to get out of this? You go back to the beginning and work your way through. The whole of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes several aspects of life and deals with them. And in each case, he gives it a subtle twist, which sends you back to the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are the, the method of the formation of the Christian character, which will then become salt and light in the world. And he deals with legalism first, because... It's a big deal. And the bottom line is the law is not something you obey in order to please God and be good. The law is a schoolmaster to teach you that you can't do that without a savior to send you once more back to seeing your problem at its real depth and working your way through. And then you can go on to the next one. Uh, 
which is how you give. If you want to give publicly, well, you've had the reward you're going to give. The ideal is to give anonymously. I get that from Americans. You are the most generous people on earth. All my travel costs to Africa, Asia, behind the Iron Curtain, when a couple of doctors learned about that some 20 years ago, uh, they didn't tell me, I worked out who it was, but they set up a fund at CMDA and put $6,000 in it and then told David, the, chairman, the, the CEO, to write and tell me it was there and that I was to use it for Africa, Eastern Europe, anywhere in the developing world that couldn't afford things like airline tickets. And they said, wonderfully, they want you to take your wife with you because they don't think it's good for you to be wandering from university to university in Nigeria on your own. We might lose you earlier than we otherwise would. And that's probably true. Uh, but there were many times when I've been on my own, wonderful things happen. So, they, and they said they have challenged uh, the, the membership and they'll match dollar for dollar for another 6,000. A few years ago, um, I saw their name. I, I, not often that I see the, the list of people who've signed up for a, a conference and their name was there. And I said to Sally, I see the Joffreans are at the conference. How much have we taken out of that fund? Can we make some estimates? Because I want to talk to them. So we did. And when I got to the conference, I found them and said, before it got going, can we have coffee together? I want to talk to you. And I said, Sally and I think that you started a travel fund at, at uh, uh, CMDA, and they admitted they did. They'd been missionaries in Madagascar for quite a while. And I said, have a guess how much money we've taken out of that fund since you started it. And they guessed 30,000. And I said, nowhere near. It's over $100,000 in travel costs. And I have no idea who gave it, except for those first two. Their reward is in heaven. But I can't tell you that story without tearing up a little bit. Uh, you have been given generosity. You were blessed like no other nation on earth not to have to bother about the nature of good and evil when you, were, when you founded the republic because the founders were good. That's why they were smart enough to put together a constitution which is almost unworkable. When three groups of people, all are very proud of themselves, have to work together. If all three arms of government don't cooperate, nothing gets done. Brilliant. They did that, of course, because they knew that sin would wreck it if you gave anybody power. We're not to be trusted with it. Of course, it's being manipulated in all kinds of ways now. Again, because Christians are not being salt and light in politics. Every church, I think, should be looking for a young person who's got the intelligence, the quick intelligence. And the Jews do this. If they see a really quick, intelligent kid who could go into politics and do well, they say, you can go into politics. We will pay for it, but we're going to keep an eye on you and you're going to defend the Jewish position. But they recognize the realities. We should learn from them. We've got lots to learn from them. Uh, but I must close. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we come to you and we thank you for all that you've done for, you, for us. And we confess that we read your word in a very shallow fashion so often. We thank you for the patience you have in, for people like me that you will wait so long. But we pray for particularly the young people here that 
they may not lose their way, that they may go deeply into the scriptures, that your training in character may become part of their life. Bless all who are here today, that they may go blessed by you for Christ's sake. Amen. Just going to say a word of prayer for Dr. Patrick. Dear God, we thank you for Dr. Patrick's joining us this weekend, for his willingness to, to spend time, to talk, to serve in just the many ways that you've used him over the many years. And we pray that you continue to draw him closer to you, to be a godly husband, father, grandfather, uh, teacher, and mentor, and that you would keep reminding him of your great love for him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you. I hope you guys enjoyed that talk. If you want John to speak at your church or at your event, be sure to reach out. You can use the links in the description below, and we will see you guys next week. Mm-hmm.